that note, we are, we're going to get started, and I'd like you to turn your Bibles, if you brought them today, or your phone, or your tablet, or you can look on the screen, to 1 Samuel 25. We are going to be in the story of David, headed towards Christmas, and uh, it, the, the sermon series is called Keeping the Faith, and what we're doing is we're looking at someone's life uh, through a longitudinal study of which we don't have a lot of examples in the, in the Bible of people where we see them at a young age and then all the way through their development to an older age. But because David is who David is, uh, we get a large narrative of his life. He's a central figure in the Bible that points straight to Christ. And so what we're doing is we're looking at what it looks like, regardless of all the imperfections that ensue in our lives, what it looks like to follow the Lord and to be somebody where God would say, they, they have a heart after me. And so as we get going on this narrative, that kind of the backstory is this, that, that there are these stages, and this is what triggers me, this is kind of how my mind ticks and my background, there are these stages of development. Now some secularists would, would define them in seven stages, I kind of look at them through like four different stages, but what I want to do is I want to look at each stage of David's life, these core different matrix for how he lived and these developmental milestones, and then look at our own lives and go, what do we need to learn from this? And so we started this thing off when David was a 15-year-old young man, uh, 15-year-olds don't shave, 15-year-olds in our culture play a lot of video games, 15-year-olds are freshmen in high school who only in South Dakota and North Dakota can even drive. Um, but uh, they're just children. And so David and his childlike years, uh, I have a 15-year-old son myself, David slays giants. David takes out a bear. David takes out a lion in his childhood. And then in the narrative of the first week of this study, we saw that David takes out a nine-and-a-half-foot giant for the glory of God and chops his head off. And so if you're 15, there's hope for you that you can also be a warrior. And so the weird part about this David series is that he starts off with a bang, and then it kind of goes downhill before it comes back at the end. And as we pick up the story last week, Micah preached to you, I was downtown. We looked at his life uh, in the wilderness when he was running from King Saul, and now we're looking at his life also in the wilderness where he is not the smartest person in the narrative, because women in our church just had such an amazing event, the smartest person in the room, I know this is going to shock you, is the woman, right? That's facetious. I mean, how many of you are married men in, room, in the church today? So th this is what's going to happen to David. He's actually going to marry her at the end of the story. And it sounds so romantic, but just keep in mind, he married other women too. So it's like, you know, not as exciting. But David is going to be prideful and arrogant, and he's going to do something that's going to risk his legacy and then Abigail, who's this other figure in the story, who's the hero of the story, is going to come in there and she is going to save his rear end, okay? So she's going to come in and she's going to save the day. And I just want a show of hands. Who in here is uh, seriously dating or married? Raise your hand high. You're so proud of it. And then here's the analogy. Like how many men in this space, first service, like all the men raise their hand. You were going to do something because you thought, well, this is the thing I need to do. This person said this to me and I'm going to handle it like this. And then you were just gung-ho, like you're a leader of some sorts. You were gung-ho. And then you unpacked that plan for your bride and your bride said, you you are an idiot, right? What are you doing? Don't handle it that way, all right? Anybody? Yes, all right, David's, warriors. That's what's gonna happen in this narrative, except she doesn't have that close of a relationship with him, so she's gonna be a bit craftier than that. And pay attention close to this figure, because she's married to someone who really is just a bad person. 
And at the end of the story, I'm going to give it away. He's going to die, and she's going to get married to David. Now, in that, right now, David's in the wilderness. And so how do you define that developmentally? I would say this, that he is now in his early 30s, but I would mark it. Anytime you leave home, you go to college, you start doing this thing that sets you apart from your childhood, you pay an actual bill, right? You, you grow up a little, but yet you're still in this in-between phase. That, that, that's how I would see the wilderness developmentally. So you, you have some things, but you still have a lot of unanswered questions about your future, specifically regarding big things like who you're going to marry and what you're going to name your kids. Well, you have your first job, maybe you took a college class, whatever. So you're kind of grown up and kind of, in some ways, not. David's in the wilderness, and he is in this time period of his life. And so he has a lot of strength, but he lacks a lot of wisdom. I'm going to move fast. There's a lot of scripture here. I don't know what to include and what to cut out and what to paraphrase, and so this is my best crack at it. There's a lot of information here. This is a very juicy story in the Old Testament. David's in the wilderness, Samuel 25, verse 2. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man named Maon whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. So his name was Nabal, and he, he was in the town of Maon, and he had business in Carmel. And the Bible doesn't say that he was rich. The Bible says that he was what? Very rich. Identified by, in the Old Testament, uh, he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And so he was shearing them. And now the man uh, was Nabal, and the name of his wife was the hero of the story, Abigail. The Bible never pulls any punches, specifically in the Old Testament when it talks about character. Next verse, the woman was discerning and beautiful. That's great. But the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Abel was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men. And David said to the young men, go to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be with you and peace to your house and peace to all that you have. And so David's just doing a little PR work with this very wealthy man, it's like harvest time for these people. And so when you shear your sheep, that's when you get the big paycheck. It's like you planted your corn in the spring and now it's harvesting and it's South Dakota and things are going well, corn prices are high, you got enough rain, you're getting everything that you need to get and uh, you're living life to the fullest. And so David sends a message, he says, hey, long life to you. And what he's really saying is, can I have a cut? And the reason he wants to cut, it seems absurd to us, is because he was protecting the Bible. I'm going to paraphrase some of these scriptures. He was protecting this guy's agricultural business because he had all sorts of warriors around him. And what he could have done, it happened all the time, is when he saw these sheep and goats, because he was a warrior, he could have had with these hundreds of men that were militants, he could have just taken his pick of the litter, you know, taken some of the sheets, ta sheep, taken some of the goats, and done what he wanted. But the Bible says this, that David didn't do any of that. And so David has character. And so he basically, in the next verses, goes up to this guy. He says, hey, I haven't taken anything. I think it's my turn. Could you just give me a little off the top? i got to take care of my men. We're hungry. We're warriors. We're running from King Saul. And then in verse 9, this is how it plays out. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and they waited. 
And Abel answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? And say, so here it gets a little awkward because, look at me when I tell you this, trust me, he knew who David was. You don't cut off a giant's head at 15 years old and that doesn't just kind of spread its tentacles around the local neighborhoods in the wilderness. Who is David? Who's the son of Jesse? For there are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. And this is his arrogance playing out. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat and I, that I have killed for my shearers and give it to the men who come from I don't know where? So David's young men turned away and they're probably thinking, oh boy. David's young men turned away and came back and told him all of this. And David said to his men, and I think you can relate if you're going to be honest, every man strap on his sword, right? And translation, oh no, he didn't. The man pride is flaring from the depths of his soul. I know he didn't just say what I think he said. Let me show you who this David is. Let me show you who the son of Jesse is. Let me show you what I have the capacity to do when you take that tone with me. And every man strapped on his sword and about 400 went with David, 200 remained with the baggage. This was like the last straw in his emotional tank. He's been through some stuff. Micah preached on that stuff last week. He's sick and he's tired. He's saying, me and my men had your back. We treated you well. We protected you. We've been good to you. All I ask is that you give us a little kickbacks, that you be good to us, and you have the audacity to disrespect me. And here's the man pride. Look at me. Not just to me, but in front of all my men. And now David says this very politely. You, my friend, are going to die. And not just you, but everyone that's running with you. Hurt people hurt people, and hunt people hunt people. David's justifying his actions. The plot thickens. He's furious. Abigail steps onto the scene. She catches wind about what's happening. She starts developing a plan. And so Abigail starts preparing some grain and cakes and wine and five sheep. She lays all this stuff on donkeys and she goes out to talk with David because she hears about how crazy her husband is acting and she knows that it's not just her husband that's gonna get the sword, she knows they're all gonna die. And so David's about to butcher people he never even met. His rage over the years is about to spill out into this one incident and David's thinking what so many of us thinking, are thinking, after all I've done, after all I've done, and it says this in the verses that we didn't read, this guy is going to pay evil for good. So Abigail says this, or she does this. When Abigail, verse 23, follow it. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and she bowed to the ground. Arrogant or humble, she's humble. She has a plan to salvage her life and the life of her people because the men of this story that are serving this wealthy farmer came to the wife and said, hey, this is, I mean, you can read it on your own time. They, they literally unpack, your, your husband's nuts. We all know that he, he is impulsive. We all know that he's short-sighted. We all know that he's too arrogant for his own good. He's gonna get us all killed. What are you gonna do about it? And so Abigail has this plan. I'm gonna get, bring David all this stuff. And as she brings David all of these things, she bows down before him and she does so humbly. 
And this is what's so cool. This is one of the coolest parts about the whole narrative. Abigail really is the hero of the story. She's the wisest person in the story. And she knows what a lot of women have already figured out. When you want to get a man to do something for you, a key way to do that, men just letting the cat out of the bag, your wife has done this to you, a key way to get what you want from the man that you are following or the man that you are in a relationship with is that you will set the script and you will kind of cast a vision for who you want them to be as a means to stroke their ego so that they can get there. And that maybe doesn't make sense, so let me break it down a little further. My wife's never done this to me, but your wife has done this to you. When she bows to David, she's doing something. I heard this from a pastor this week. I thought, this is like the best thing in the whole story. She's treating David as if he is already the man that she hopes that he will be. So in a sense, she's manipulating him a little bit, and she's going to unpack that. We're going to read that together. There's a really cool thing that happens within this narrative. It's powerful. Here's how she does it. She already has a vision for David when David's not there yet. And trust me, the woman in your life probably had the same vision for you. But look at verse 24. She fell at his feet and she said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. This is called leadership. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, she's talking about her husband, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and follow and I am following him, but I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as you, uh, you should live, because the Lord has restrained you, now check it out, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. She's saying, now that the Lord has restrained you from this innocent bloodshed, this blood guilt, and here's what's so clever about it. He hasn't done that yet. She has a vision for David. She's hoping that he falls in line. She's hoping that he kind of takes the bait on this because lives are at stake. She's saying, thank you so much for doing what you haven't done yet in saving all of these people. And it works. Right? Like, like women do stuff like this. I, I didn't know if you, if you knew that. She says, my husband's name has a name. It, it's like his name literally translates fool. So, so in your own marriage, it kind of looks like this. They get you to do things that you haven't even done yet. They'll look at you and they go, man, you're strong. Have you been lifting? The, look at that trash right there. You need to see the example of me doing this because strength fits into the narrative, right? But she, she, she says to him, man, you, you can really, like, look what you can do. You can save people's lives. And he's like, I can save people's lives. Well, you know, I mean, he's just falling for it. It's like, Wow, look at that trash right there. I bet you could take that trash, lift it with one arm. You could go all the way to trash count because you are the man. And he's going, I am the man. She has a vision for something that hasn't even happened yet. And she says, you know that my, my husband, he lacks character. So what, are you going to slaughter all of us because of him? You guys ever follow Star Wars? You like Star Wars? It's like a Jedi mind trick. The Lord has kept you from bloodshed. And he's like, the Lord has kept me from bloodshed. You will now travel over here. I will now travel over here. She has a vision for David that David doesn't even understand yet. Verse 28, please forgive the trespasses of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. 
If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies shall be like a sling that is slung from the hollow of a sling. So she's saying, remember when you were 15 years old? Remember you had the sling and you had the stone and you took out the giant and then you chopped off his head? She's using that metaphor language back with him. And your, your life can be bound to the Lord. You can do the right thing, David. Right, so what do you want your legacy? She's getting him to think forwardly. What do you want your legacy to be like? Because one day, this is just going to be a little story in your narrative. You're going to be king someday. Do you really want to be known as the guy who was living in the wilderness and got mad at another guy because your pride was hurt and then you took out everyone around him and you're remembering all that bloodshed and you're looking on your deathbed going, man, I was so stupid. She's saying, you still have a chance. You haven't killed anyone yet. She's getting him to think about the future because she's wise. And when you're going back to look at this incident, how do you want this moment in your life to be remembered? Verse 30, and when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. She's taking him from a place of emotional, this is a good woman, to rational. And David starts coming back to this place called reality. He's starting to get it. And she's leading the charge. Verse 32. And David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord God of your Israel who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. Verse 35. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. He takes the food, he takes the sheep. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted you petition. Verse 36, and Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he was holding a feast. This guy is not living right. He's holding a feast in his house like a feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him for he was not just drunk. What was he? He was very drunk. And so she told him nothing at all until the morning because she knew that if he was drunk, it wouldn't matter anyways. And in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things and his heart died within him and he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. And so God worked this out himself. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord, this is the Old Testament, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal back to his own head. And then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. Of course he does, right? And they all lived happily ever after, not so much. Because then in the following verses, he gets married to other women as well. It's just a true story. It's not pretty. And Abigail hurried and rose, verse 42, last verse, and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messages of David, and she became his wife. Three characters, lots of things to learn. Let's write them down together. I have been stewing on these thoughts all week. I feel like they'd almost make a little pamphlet on what do you do in your 20s and into your 30s to maturate in a godly fashion appropriately. And so here are the things that I have for you. They are directly connected to the things that I see in the life of David, in the life of Abigail, 
and in the wicked life of her now dead husband. Number one, you have two options in each of these scenarios. As you're in the wilderness, defined by the beginning of this message, are you going to do one of two things? Are you going to be nearsighted or farsighted? Or maybe a better way of stating it is this. Are you going to have a plan for your future? Because immaturity sees the world through the lens of a tunnel. Spiritual immaturity sees the world through the lens of a tunnel. I want this thing, and that's all I can see. Spiritual maturity sees life through the lens of peripheral vision. Spiritual maturity is good at basketball. It's good at passing. It can see things happening here, 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 and then more importantly, into the future. And it sees all of these things and then asks the basic question, what does God want me to do? What does it look like to have a vision for my future? This is the Jedi mind trick that Abigail's using on David. There's going to be a day over here if you can just see it. And he's going, I just see this tunnel. I just see this anger. I just see this frustration. I want to kill this guy that has the audacity to dog me in front of all my friends that have swords. And she's going, yes, but there's going to be a day. And if you have a vision for your future, there's going to be a day that you're going to regret that. And the question then becomes, do the decisions that you're making line up with the vision that you have, or more importantly, that God has for your future? Because if you keep living on this track of godlessness in your life, even though you say you're a follower of the one true God, there is going to be carnage at the end of it. And the reality is this, look at me, that's for all of us, right? And we can come into this space week after week after week. And we can claim to know God, we can claim to serve Christ, but at the end of the day, that whole issue of obedience has to play out. And when it doesn't, there is carnage that takes place. So many of the problems in our life are a direct result of the immaturity that we spent in the wilderness not serving Jesus. We don't want to hear that, but it's the truth. And then we get to a different stage that we'll get to in the weeks to come, and we regret living with these regrets because we didn't do things the way that God had wanted us to do things. And although he's forgiven us, there are still consequences. Remind me of a really spiritual moment that I saw 20 years ago within the confines of a great spiritually uplifting movie called The Wedding Singer. Have you seen it? It's so uplifting. The great philosopher Adam Sandler is absolutely in love with, do you guys remember? Who is it? Wake up, second service. This is the last one. You're going to get all the lunch you want, free carbs, whatever you want, right? Wake up now. Who's he fall in love with in the movie? Drew Barrymore. There we go. You've seen the movie. I'm not the only person, right? So he's in love, and then she's dating this bozo. He looks like Nabal in the story. He's a user. He's a manipulator, and he's rich. It works perfectly. And Adam Sandler's licking his wounds because he's like, well, if love is real, and it's not Christian, so he's like, this is all he's got is this love temporary thing. He's like, if love is real, then, then why am I not getting the girl? And why is this guy, I think his name's Glenn or something like that, why is he getting the girl? And he starts sobbing on his best friend's shoulder. Do you remember whose best friend is in the narrative of the wedding singer? It's the limo driver. You remember? And the limo driver is like 40 years old, and he has been living in an environment that's nearsighted where 
Adam Sandler says, I'm going to start living like you. I'm going to not have a vision for my future. I'm just going to meet a girl at the bar. And then next week, I'm going to need another girl at the bar. And I'm not going to worry about any of this because my feelings are hurt. And then the guy who has lived that life of being nearsighted looks to Adam Sandler and he goes, man, I'm miserable. Don't live like me. I'm an idiot. Do you remember? That's what happens when we don't have a vision for our future. He's saying, don't follow my example. I've been lost in the wilderness to the point of it's not cool to be lost in the wilderness anymore. Everyone's moved on without me because I didn't have a vision for the future that I was supposed to live. The difference between being nearsighted and farsighted. Abigail had a vision for her future, and she had a vision, this is the leader within her, for the future of those that she loved and cared about under her son, her dad, or her husband's, I'm sorry, this is getting weird, her husband's dysfunctional leadership. And so this whole message is like, man, these two men in the story, they're so dysfunctional. This guy is evil. David is neglecting wisdom. And then here's the shining story, star of the story. But let's just kind of offend a little equally amongst the sanctuary this morning. Although we look at her and we look to her and we go, she has a vision for her future. She's what a godly woman looks like. She's the one with wisdom. She's the one with foresight. If we're just to be honest, most women aren't Abigail. Most women don't look like that. Most women go, man, I wish I had a vision for my future with this person in my life because I'm in the wilderness and I'm lonely and I need a man and I want children. And unfortunately, instead of having a vision like Abigail, what they do instead is they go, oh, I want all these things. He'll do. True? He'll do. I can put that picture on social media and I can dress that up, and I can put out a meme to all my friends from high school to let them know that I'm maturating and that I'm going through this process, and now I have this person in a picture on social media that looks good, and I have a white picket fence with two kids and two cats and a dog, and I have it all figured out, but really, you just skipped the process, and you didn't find someone with character, and you're sitting in the wilderness too, and then 10 years after that, you're wondering why it all fell apart. I'm just, if you don't like that, you should email tech, uh, Pastor Chuck. He told me to say all of that. I didn't want to. Abigail has a vision for her future that is far into the future. And when you don't, there are these things that play out. Because Abigail kept doing stuff that they weren't doing. Here's the second one. This is like my own thoughts. I've been festering on them. In that stage of the wilderness, you're going to do one of two things. You are going to learn to be self-controlled or you are going to continue to be self-destructive. These guys are self-destructive. Right? David's going to wipe people out. Abel's going to have himself killed. He doesn't even know it. Both are living with this arrested development. Both are living with this pride. And within their pride, the real issue is that they're insecure, in my opinion. Because what does insecurity do for men? It flexes, doesn't it? Insecurity says, no one's going to talk to me that way because I have this significance. But what secure people do that's different than insecure people is secure people just know who they are. It's like, well, you said that about me, but I know who I am. David's not there yet. David's in the wilderness. David is scared. He's running from Saul. He gets challenged. He wants to fight back because on some level, I would imagine he doesn't believe who God's even called him to be. And so he is just dealing with all these issues and he's self-destructing. 
It happens all the time. We have this time in our life. We, we leave the nest. We, we gain some bearings. We start adulting and we start serving the Lord. And there are all these challenges and tests of faith that come into our life. And instead of walking through what God has called us to walk through, instead of looking and leaning on the word of God and having a prayer life and developing Christ-centered relationships and, and feeding on the local church as a means of really just a place of safety where we can pro- proclaim the gospel, instead of that, we start just getting destructive where we show up to a service in our wilderness years and then we leave Sunday and by two o'clock we're doing whatever the heck we want Monday through Saturday and we go, why haven't we changed? Why are things so dysfunctional? It's because you're self-destructing instead of being self-controlled like the fruit of the Spirit demands. That's what plays out in our lives. One more story. We'll start wrapping towards closing. It's the last story I've got but I've got other points. I was at a football game yesterday in Fargo and I was so keenly aware I don't know where the praise team's back at, but don't come up yet. I'm not ready. I was so keenly aware that uh, SDSU was a fluke that I had to go back and watch them again play UND, and they pounded on UND pretty good. And there were these guys that were behind me, and um, no critique of them. I don't think they were Christians, and if you're not a Christian, then really, like, of course, sin or sin, right? So uh, really funny guys, but they didn't get drunk at the game. They showed up drunk at the game, and they always do. They were actually really funny. They wear these green coats and they crack jokes. And the thing that stuck out to me, though, was I remember these guys when my boys were younger. My boys were in elementary school, and they're like 19 and 20. And I've almost got an adult in the house now. And so it's been a while. And year after year, they've been coming. I remember when my kids were little, and they were in college, they had this swear jar that was the big joke. And he said to me, remember that swear jar we had? Because they cuss like every other word. And I said, yeah, man, we filled that thing up so much. I bought a Harley. Thank you so much for that. That's what I told him. And he's like, yeah, since we've been doing this forever and we've been sitting right behind you with our green coats and our, and our football pants and we've just been getting hammered and ha, 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 ha. And I'm going, yeah, you did do that. And you were like 19 and 20 and you were living in the wilderness. You were just starting. But now you're almost 30 and you're worse than when you were 20. And you don't get drunk at the game anymore. You show up drunk to the game. I didn't say that. I thought it. <clears throat> and then I looked around. I saw a few of them. They had some wedding rings on. No wife. No wife present. Just the boys. Just like the good old days. And they're, they're going to this football game. And they're wearing their green coats. And they're cracking jokes. And they're hammered before halftime. And then they say to themselves, my oldest child heard this. What are we going to do after the game? We're going, we're going to the bar. Well, that's a great idea. I really hope you have a designated driver. And there's this delusion in our minds that somehow we maturate by numerically when really, when we don't serve the Lord, we stay in the exact same spiritual state we've always been. We're dead in our sins until we're alive in Christ. And we self-destruct and self-destruct and self-destruct. And God calls us to be self-controlled in how we live. Here's another thing that we do. We are selfish instead of selfless. That is just a given. You want a matrix for knowing where you're at? How selfish are you? Her husband was so selfish, he couldn't even be generous with people that maintained self-control and didn't take anything from him. He was so selfish, he didn't even think about how his decisions affected everyone else. And he was so prideful, he probably didn't even care. Here's another one. This one's big. This one's worth the price of admission. You want to know where you're at in the wilderness if you're moving past it? Do you have a plan for your future? Are you selfish or selfless? Here's another one. Are you reactive 
or proactive. You see what these guys are doing? They're just reacting to everything. David just wakes up. All of a sudden he gets ticked off. He gets all his men together. He's going to go kill some people. Abigail is different. She hears the train coming on the tracks, and instead of watching the wreckage, she proactively finds solutions. She makes food. She brings gifts. She appeals with reasons. She calms nerves. She feeds pride. She speaks to the future. And what I want to tell you is this. Masculinity in its purest form is selfless, humble, and proactively seeking the best for those under its care. And ladies, I always go back to these concepts, I know, but this is the stage we're in. You're still single. If you don't have a man like that, end it. Not if you're married, that's a, but if you are looking to a future version of somebody that you think will maturate, are they displaying these signs? Do they have a vision for their future in Christ with the family that they'll raise and the kids that they'll show to love Jesus? Are they showing that they're self-destructive, getting hammered on the weekends and hanging out with the boys, or are they self-controlled? Are they selfish in how they handle you, or are they selfless in dealing with you and your future children? Are they reactive or are they proactive? And here's the last one. Are they predictable or are they remarkable? Are you predictable or are you remarkable? Because the first person in the story, he's maniacal. He returns evil for good. David returns evil for evil. And here's what's interesting about that. That's just the Old Testament. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That, that's not that, you know, I mean, of course. This guy has earned what he's about to get. And because he earned what he's about to get, because David has this response, David in this moment is not leading. He's just predictable. Abigail shows a gospel reflection of what's to come in Christ. She does what is not predictable. She returns good for evil, and in doing so, she's remarkable. She's remarkable. And so she's this example this morning of what it looks like to be mature in the wilderness. But then the ultimate reality, and the praise team can come back up in just a second because we're done, is that when we look to this, we have to mention Jesus, right? The whole Bible points to him. It looks forward, looks back. Jesus, here's what's cool about the wilderness stages if you're in it. If you're, if you're you know, out of the home, and you're doing your thing, you look a lot like Jesus because Jesus is in this stage the entirety of his adult life. He stays in this stage. He has no wife, no kids, no future except for the cross. And then he obviously raises from the dead. But in his earthly ministry, he goes back to the Father. But his future is the cross. It, it's not that uplifting. He, he is going to be punished over and over again. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be shamed. He's going to take on those challenges of David. He could have instantly flexed his muscle as the savior of the universe, as the king of kings, as the Lord of lords. And what David does is so absolutely not predictable or what Jesus does is not predictable, it's absolutely remarkable where he turns the other cheek, he has the crown of thorns placed on his head, he gets spit on, he gets mocked by the very people that he created, he knows every hair on their head, and then he says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, and the only way that we are going to be like Christ, the only way we're going to be like Christ and be remarkable for Christ's kingdom instead of predictable in the world around us is if we take our faith to a place in the wilderness where we go from saying we believe in Jesus to a place where we say, we obey Jesus. Everyone believes in our world on something, right? But Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. And those are the people that go from the wilderness 
to then reaching the next generation for Christ as an example of what it looks like to love their wives and to love their kids and to lead their homes and to be remarkable in the world that God has placed them in. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in you and you alone. We want to be people that are remarkable. I pray that people come back for Kingdom Builders tonight. We would hear more about your vision to, to fund this orphanage, to fund the journey home in town, to fund the ministries and churches in Peru, uh, the stuff that we want to do with youth ministry here at home, that this would just be a time where we'd celebrate your kingdom impact. We thank you that in the last now five campaigns, when this is all said and done, we all have raised right around eight hundred to $900,000 to advance your kingdom. That we can take our money and just give it back out. Because we want to be remarkable, humble servants for your kingdom. We pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you. And we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.